When it comes to the emotions, the only real relationship that we have with our body a lot of the time is through some of these painful experiences. And the reason for that is because as we're growing up, we experience any number of physiological sensations. We're hungry, we're tired, we're sore, we're uncomfortable somehow. The drive to escape discomfort drives dopamine, which creates some sort of motivation. So we can think of pain as the motivation to change. Today, I'm so excited to be talking nerdy again with Dan Carter. And this time we're going to be diving into the neurophysiology of pain, physical, mental, and emotional pain. This episode is less of a conversation and more of a masterclass where Dan will teach you about the biopsychosocial factors that influence pain, the relationship between pain, stress, and trauma, and most importantly, how to manage your levels of pain physically and psychologically. The last conversation that I had with Dan on Talk Nerdy to me was about the ripple effects of childhood trauma, and this one is a continuation of that in some regards. Because this episode will dive into trauma-related concepts, sensitive listeners should be advised. Before we dive into this episode, we're going to take a little bit of time for a nerd alert. A few months ago, I interviewed Mona Anand about non-sleep deep relaxation and the practice of yoga nidra. To date, this has been one of the most popular episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me. If you are unfamiliar with the practice of yoga nidra, it's essentially a guided meditation technique that's practiced laying down. The goal of the practice is to teach your body how to fall asleep while your mind remains alert and attentive. In doing so, you help your brain shift into what is known as the hypnagogic state or this kind of twilight zone between being asleep and being awake. It's in this hypnagogic state, it's in this kind of in-between state that you'll have greater access to what is known as alpha, theta, and delta brainwave prominences and subsequently the subconscious and unconscious mind. Because you'll have access to these different brainwave prominences within yoga nidra, it makes it an incredibly potent practice for rewiring your subconscious and unconscious belief systems, pulling out old beliefs from the root, and planting new ones in their place. That's part of what makes this an incredibly powerful practice in manifestation and rewiring your brain to reflect the future self that you are stepping into. Whether you're someone who is actually interested in guiding and facilitating this practice or you not so selfishly want to learn more about this practice simply for your own self-understanding, you are more than welcome to join me online for a virtual Yoga Nidra facilitator training that begins on January 17th, 2024. We'll meet every Wednesday on Zoom from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for about three months, and by the end of the training, you'll have a full understanding of the practice and the skill set necessary to successfully guide either yourself or others through it. Because one-on-one -on -one feedback from me and live attendance is such a critical component of it, space in the training is going to be limited. So to learn more and save your spot, you can click the link in the show notes or visit me over at alexnashton.com slash nidra training. That's alexnashton.com slash nidra training. Last but not least, if you've been listening to Talk Nerdy to me and have found this information to be helpful, I would love it if you could hit pause and leave this podcast a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. 
In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome back to the show, Dan Carter. At the time that we are recording this episode, it's only been a few weeks since your last episode was released and the feedback that we've been getting has been absolutely amazing. Today, I'm so excited to dive into the relationship between pain and stress, the biopsychosocial factors that influence both with you. And I'm really excited to learn more from you because this is actually an area that I've had very little experience and education in. When I was a student at UCLA, my primary area of research was fear, the fear response, and anxiety. And so the extent of education that I received on pain was that fear can act as an analgesic to pain when we're in life-threatening danger. So there's been a lot of research done specifically on mice and a little bit in humans as well, where when we really believe that we're in life-threatening danger, like combat veterans, for example, who get injured in battle, we will have this flood of encephalins, endorphins that flow through our body and bind with the opioid receptors of our brain. And similar to other types of opioid agonists like morphine and heroin, these can have a numbing mechanism on our body's pain response. So the education that I received was basically that fear inhibits us from feeling pain until after we've gotten to a place where we can perceive that we are safe, which is why people get into car accidents and not realize that they're injured until way later when their stress level can start coming down, which is obviously not as nuanced as what we're going to be diving into today. And I think that it poses a lot of really interesting questions for me around the nuances of chronic stress, chronic pain, and the relationship between the two. So I'm so excited to have you on here. Uh, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks. So yeah, we got some really good feedback from our last episode. hope it was very helpful. It sounded like it was. Yeah, obviously, you know, pain and stress and especially chronic pain and stress can definitely lead to trauma. So hopefully we can have the conversation and bring it full circle today so that people can have a better understanding around how some of these things build up in the body and what to do about it. Amazing. So let's dive right in. Can you define pain for listeners physically, psychologically, emotionally? So the easy point of access is pain is an unpleasant sensation from some form of noxious or potentially dangerous stimulus. Well, the body has multiple different senses. It has stretch receptors, it has mechanoreceptors, it has thermal receptors, all of these different nerve types feeding the brain information at any one point in time so that the brain can make a sense of where it is in the environment. And the intention of the brain at any point in time is to ask, well, two questions really, am I safe and is the world safe? So the brain is just constantly trying to pick up the information from the environment and formulate some sort of cognition or some sort of perception so that we can move forward and survive. So the number one intention of the brain is survival at any point in time. So we need these nociceptors or noxious stimulus receptors in order to inform the brain about things that could be potentially dangerous. So pain is perception of what's happening in the outside world. That could be formulated from any number of situations. So we can definitely have physical pain, of course. 
that doesn't necessarily mean tissue damage. That means we have a perception that there may be something wrong. That could be psychosocial, could be psychoemotional, it could be interoceptive pain. Any one of these systems can contribute to the perception of pain. One of the things that you mentioned was that it's a perception of something that's happened or could be happening in the outside world. And I also know that a lot of the pain that we experience comes from stories, ideas, narratives that we formulate within the container of our own head. So I'm curious if you can speak just a little bit more to the emotional piece. So that will tie into our beliefs, our beliefs around pain and what it means to be in pain. So quite often, especially when we're growing up, as soon as we experience pain, obviously we'll tie that to some sort of tissue damage. Maybe we've fallen over and we've scraped our knee and then there's this painful response. So over time, we formulate these beliefs that pain equals damage. So if there's any sort of pain going on, we're already going to be of the belief that something is inherently wrong. When it comes to the emotions, the only real relationship that we have with our body a lot of the time is through some of these painful experiences. And the reason for that is because as we're growing up, we experience any number of physiological sensations. We're hungry, we're tired, we're sore, we're uncomfortable somehow. This is the basis of motivation as well. The drive to escape discomfort drives dopamine, which creates some sort of motivation. So we can think of pain in a slightly different way, which I'll get into later, as the motivation to change. But emotionally speaking, pain and nociception goes through the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, and the emotional center of the brain, and it will formulate this story trying to make sense of this sensation and will drive emotional states around our experience of pain. So that could come up with any number of things, which we recognize might, might be sadness, might be anger, something that is going to motivate us to change the internal and external environment. I think it's so interesting that you mentioned the avoidance of discomfort drives our brain's dopamine response, which is a part of our reward circuitry and also the thing that enables us to feel pleasure, which I think is one of the only other motivators that we really have, the experience of pain or the pursuit of pleasure. So I'm really looking forward to diving into both of those things more with you. There was something that we wanted to touch on before we dove into this episode, and it was the biopsychosocial factors that contribute to our experience of pain or to our experience of stress. And I'm curious if you can break those down for us just a little bit more. So the biopsychosocial model is our latest model of how we experience the world or someone's personal experience. It's a subjective model. So there's a few different factors that contribute to this. We have the biological factors, which would be the actual physiological state of the person in their environment. It would be the psychological factors. So things like meaning, their state of mind, their perceived control and capacity, their level of vigilance, any concurrent stresses that they might be experiencing. And then we've got the social factors as well. So their social surroundings, their status, any sort of threat to reputation, maybe some social support or access to support, their socioeconomic status. These biological, psychological, and social aspects all contribute 
to our perception of our current state of being, whether that be stressful or whether that be painful and all the other states of being at the same time. So if we can start to take into account that these factors are contributing to our story, we can start to tell ourselves a different story, which might make more sense for us and might be more conducive along the way. And what that means is if someone has the belief that pain is directly associated to tissue damage, meaning I have a pain in my shoulder and therefore something's wrong. We need to start to understand this person's model of why they think these tissues are damaged, what the rest of their systemic health is, what is their breath doing, what is their digestive state doing, what are the other stresses inside their body, what is their neurochemistry like in response to pain. We need to start asking questions about their psychological perspective around this story that they're telling themselves. And we need to start to ask questions around their social status and what that means for them as a person and how they fit into their tribe as well. And if we can start to help them encapsulate and rewrite that story in a different way, we can change that person's perception of pain and stress. Okay. I have so many more questions that are starting to bubble up now. And I want to make sure we stay on track, but I'm also just so curious. What you're essentially saying is that our perception of other experiences in our life our social status, our relationships with others, our work-life balance, all of these other things can play a role in our experience of not only emotional pain, but also physical pain too. Is that correct? Absolutely. And is stress the thing that mediates that relationship? It's hard to say if stress is the mediator of the relationship. I think it's a balance between all these different factors. So... In a broad sense, yes, because we can encapsulate all these different aspects under the banner of stress. But we need to dive deeper with the person and start to understand why this person is experiencing this in the first place. But once we have this picture of what they're experiencing, we can start to ask those questions and dive deeper so that we can get to what we deem the root cause of this perception. So quite often I have a person doing an exercise and they might tell me, oh, that hurts. So I'll ask the questions. Let me see, where does it hurt? What makes it worse? What makes it better? But quite often I'll ask them to describe the sensation to me without using the words pain, hurt, bad, or sore. Let's explore the feeling. Let's explore the sensation. Let's try and make sense of it. Is it stretching? Is it burning? Talk to me about the experience of what's happening. Okay, so the whatever the sensation is coming up. Cool, that's happening. What else is going on? We've had a pain in the shoulder and have you had a big day at work? Have you got a lot of stress on your plate? How have the kids been? You know, all these things can contribute to their breath work and their breath patterns and the fluid dynamics in their body. It can contribute to the amount of what we call allostatic load or the load of stress across the week which can alter their relationship with their body and alter their perception of stress. So we need to start asking these deeper questions when someone just says that they're experiencing some sort of pain. What I'm hearing in a lot of what you're sharing is this concept of non-reactivity, which I know we kind of touched on a bit in our last conversation as well, more of the Eastern philosophy of being able to be with sensation as it is 
not as we would like it to be and without ascribing any negative connotation or story to it. And what we talked about in our last episode was Vipassana meditation. And a big piece of that is observing the sensation without reacting to it, without physically reacting to it, but also without mentally and emotionally reacting to it. And I know for me, that was my experience in my first two Vipassana meditation retreats. The thing that inhibited me from dropping more deeply into my practice was physical pain, specifically with my knees, because when you're going on retreats like this, they encourage you to not move a single hair on your body for an hour at a time. So from the time that the gong rings, you're sitting for an hour and you're not supposed to move for that entire hour. You're not supposed to open your eyes or fidget or scratch yourself or anything. And I remember just being in excruciating pain, feeling my knees were so uncomfortable and opening my eyes. And my second my second retreat that I went to, there was this pregnant woman sitting next to me, like super pregnant woman. And I remember thinking to myself, like, God damn it, if she can sit throughout this entire thing without moving, I should be able to. I can do it. And so I would sit with my pain in my knees and explore the sensation without reacting to it emotionally, mentally, or physically, and had this incredible experience of witnessing it dissipate, and then come back, and then dissipate, and then come back. And experiencing its impermanence, I think, was my biggest takeaway from that, that pain doesn't last ever. But a lot of the stories and narratives that we construct around it, a lot of the ways that we approach it or avoid it, or latch on to it can create bigger issues for us. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Yes, so reactive to pain. As soon as we experience a sensation that's uncomfortable, we immediately want to do something about it. We want to move our body. We want to go and get a painkiller. We want to do something to react to this pain. What we're not doing is validating the experience. Everything that we experience is trying to tell us something. Emotions are trying to communicate with us. It's our body's way of speaking with us. Sensations of pain is our body trying to speak with us and trying to tell us something and motivate us to do something. So if we ignore that and then we just do something about it and without listening to it, we miss out on the message. We become so disconnected to our bodies. There is always a reason that this is happening. So we can talk about the causative reasons or the past tense, like why is this occurring? Or we can also dive into what is this trying to teach me? What is this trying to show me? So in the way of knees hurting, for me, in my experience, both my knees and my back were hurting on that Vipassana meditation retreat. What a wonderful experience to sit with that pain and watch it dissipate because at some point in time, the body has figured out that it's given us the message that we need to give it and we are still safe so it can go away. We've made sense of it, we've listened to it, we've acknowledged it and we're still okay. So it can go away and then we'll pick up another sensation. But once we've listened to it and acknowledged it without having to react to it, again, it will dissipate. It's given us the information that it needs. So it is always trying to tell us something and if we can listen to it, we can gain so much more from it and reconnect with our body. 
I think you have to be a little masochistic to go on a retreat like that. But it also sounds like it is such a valuable skill and also some of what you're doing with your clients, being able to explain the sensation, label the sensation, first of all, without making it mean pain and also something wrong, bad, hurt, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's a really important skill for everybody to have, not just as it pertains to the body, but also the different thought patterns that we have and stories that we have and and narratives that we have. So I so appreciate you sharing that. Can you dig into a little bit more of what is going on in our experience of stress? Because there's a huge relationship between the two. And stress is also a facet of our body's fear response. So can you lean into that a little bit more and share with listeners what the relationship is between the two? And maybe just break down in your experience what your definition of stress is to begin. So stress is anything that's taking our body out of its natural balance or homeostasis. A stressor will occur. And a stressor is external or it could be internal to the body, but it's something that's affecting the body. So the stressor is the stimulus. Let's say we're sitting in a room and you're getting hot. The stressor is heat, temperature rising, and it will take your body out of its natural homeostasis or natural balance and will start to rise the core temperature above its range of comfortability. Stress is the way that our body reacts to that. So the hypothalamus obviously is the control center of the brain in a lot of ways. And it will receive signals that something needs to change. So it will start the process of trying to maintain homeostasis or trying to bring back the balance. So with that, we start to go through our heat stress response. We start to sweat a little bit. The blood flushes the skin all that sort of stuff where we're trying to cool ourselves down in the same way that if we get too cold, the hypothalamus picks that up through our thermoreceptors. It does something about it. So what it does is it shuttles the blood towards the organs, pulls it away from the surface. We start to shiver to heat ourselves back up and maintain, maintain core temperature. All of this is an effort to maintain our homeostasis or balance in order for us to survive. In the same way that pain is trying to make sense of our situation, so that we can do something about our survival, stress is the body's way of taking care of itself to maintain its own survival. So stress generally in a lot of ways, depending on the situation, obviously there's, there's situations where this doesn't happen, but generally there are, it exists in what we call a negative feedback loop. So what happens is certain hormones, whatever it might be, depending on the system, will signal to the hypothalamus that we're back in baseline, we're okay, there's nothing to do. Once those signals are received that we need to change our state, let's say we need to cool down or we need to heat up or maybe we need to get excited about something. So our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis starts to stimulate. Well, then we have certain hormones rushing around the body. But once that stress is removed or once that stressor has been removed and our body is returned to our range of homeostasis or balance, well, then those hormones switch off, which means we can come back down to our resting state. So all of this is helping us to survive. Amazing. And I want to 
for a moment tie this back to the conversation that we were having in our last episode about trauma because when we experience adversity as children, we decrease the number of glucocorticoid receptors we have in the hypothalamus. And because it works as a negative feedback loop, what that means is individuals who experience childhood trauma, childhood adversity, need more cortisol, adrenaline, stress hormones running through their body in order to shut this thing down eventually. It also impacts the microRNA. So that adaptation passes through generations into children and grandchildren as well. So even the children and grandchildren of those who have been traumatized will have the same glucocorticoid adaptation, um, or they'll generally have lower levels of cortisol and less adaptability to stress. I love that we're getting so nerdy here. There's actually been some research done, not in humans, but in mice. If you cross-foster rat puppies, the environmental context of being with more nurturing, caring rat mom, as opposed to one that's very neglectful, can actually increase the number of receptors. So we can't say that that necessarily translates to humans, but if we were to hypothesize what that could mean is the environmental conditions we're exposing ourselves to give us the ability to disrupt that intergenerational trauma and start to heal ourselves and other generations moving forward, which I think is so powerful. And I love that we're having this conversation. Reminds me of our first conversation talking about glucocorticoid receptors. Yeah, exactly. And the HVA access, it's also interconnected. Amazing. So Something that we talked about, not we meaning you and I, but something that I talked about with another podcast guest, Kristen Leal, was about how we live in a culture that likes to label stress as wrong or bad. And in the context of building bone density or muscle mass, we actually need stress in order to do that. In the case of nervous system resilience, we we need stress in order to do that. But I think that where people can get a little confused is, well, what's the line? What's the limit? How much is too much in order for us to go into a state of complete overwhelm and shut down or to actually grow from the things that we're experiencing? Stress is absolutely necessary, not just for us to survive, but for us to grow. So there's, I include this in one of my workshops, a rabbi He's on YouTube and I can provide the link. I'm wondering where this is going. <laughs> We're not getting religious. There is a particular rap. I can't remember his name, but he gives a really good analogy around stress. And it's about how do lobsters grow? Now, a lobster is this soft, mushy animal that lives in a hard exoskeleton. So it grows, it eats and it grows and it eats and grows until it reaches the limit of that exoskeleton. But it can't grow anymore. And it becomes so uncomfortable that it has to go under a rock to protect itself, shed the shell, and then it will form a new shell. So the stimulus for growth was the discomfort of the exoskeleton. So in that way, if lobsters had access to Panadol or Paracetamol or Percocet or anything like that, they just go to the chemist and they would go get drugs and they'd never grow. They'd never outgrow their own shells because they never had that stimulus in the first place. Chemist is pharmacist for those of you that are listening in the United States. As you were saying, they just go to the chemist. <laughs> so they go to the drugstore 
and they would get painkillers and there would be no impetus to grow. There'd be no impetus because we'd be, the, the lobster would be avoiding pain. So this stress is absolutely necessary for us to grow. We need to grow outside of our shells. Now, like you said, how much is too much? There's two types of stress or we categorize two types of stress into what we call eustress and distress. So eustress is within a recoverable tolerance. So it takes us out of our comfort zone, but it's adaptable. It encourages us to adapt and we've got the resources to that tolerance limit that we can adapt to. So for example, I go to the gym and I lift a bunch of weights. I might lift 100 pounds, for example. That might be just outside my comfort zone. And then I get a little bit sore and I start to recover. I give myself enough protein, enough carbohydrates. I give myself the substrate that I need in order to recover. I get enough sleep. So I put on extra muscle. That eustress is recoverable. It's We need to be able to adapt to it. There is a point in time where I will find a limit from which I can't recover. Let's say I go to the gym and instead of lifting 100 pounds, I'm getting egotistical or I'm getting you know excited and I go to lift 200 pounds. But that's well beyond my limit and my tissues can't adapt to that and I tear a muscle or I tear a tendon or you know there's some sort of actual tissue damage that happens. Right, That is distress because it is damaging the system. It is past the limit of tolerance. So we need stress in order to adapt. And from a physiological perspective in fitness and in training and exercise, we look at what we call the super compensation model. So there's a period of time after training where we're adapting to that training stimulus and we've actually grown We've grown towards whatever that stimulus was. Maybe it's cardiovascular capacity, whatever it is, whatever we've trained for. But if we train too much and too often and we don't recover effectively, well, then we're going to step into the realm of distress and we will start damaging the body. Emotionally, psychologically, the stories and narratives that we tell ourselves, the meaning that we make from external experiences or internal experiences how do we discern what that line is for ourselves? And also, does this have anything to do with Dan Siegel's model of the window of tolerance? Are you familiar? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the window of tolerance is essentially the capacity that we have to handle stress without going into a state of overwhelm or without going into a state of trigger in the case of individuals who have experienced trauma. When we're under chronic stress, that window gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time and our likelihood of going into a state of overwhelm or collapse, getting stuck in a hypervigilant or sympathetic state or getting stuck in like a completely depressed, immobilized state can occur. I heard you use the word tolerance. So I was wondering if there was any relationship between what you were sharing and that line of work. And it sounds like there may be just a different vocabulary and terminology. From a physiological perspective, we talk about tissue tolerance because injury occurs past the point of tissue tolerance. So if there's just too much load and force on the body, then we undergo tissue damage. So we talk about tissue tolerance. But in the same way, emotions seem to work fairly similarly. So how much can we take on? 
And we really need to have an honest conversation with ourselves about how much we're actually taking on. So if we've had certain experiences that have helped us adapt to trauma or we've done deeper work in order to heal from those situations, well, then we can probably handle a little bit more than we might expect. However, we also need to be honest with what's actually going on for us at the time. Not just the situation itself, but what are all the other situations we're experiencing that are contributing to these experiences of stress, psychological pain, emotional pain, uh, trauma itself, any sort of triggering states, any sort of crisis moments. You know, all these things can build up for us. So if we can have a really good conversation with ourselves about how much we're actually taking on, then we can start to understand what we can tolerate. Some people are going to be more um, tolerable and open to taking on more, some people less. It's completely subjective, just like the experience of pain and stress. That makes a lot of sense. Can you share a little bit more about the relationship between trauma and pain? Because I don't think that that's a really clear through line that we've explored just yet. Yes. Trauma and stress. So, like I said, Last time, trauma is not really what happened to you. It's not the event. It's what you make of the event. It's the meaning that you draw from and how that impacts you today. Anything that is emotionally impactful or significantly emotional can contribute to this trauma because we draw meaning to it. So let's give the analogy of a child who has, across this child's lifetime, they've been abandoned or they felt like they've been abandoned. Maybe their father was working a hell of a lot and was never around. Maybe their mother was too busy with three other siblings. Maybe there were financial troubles. Who knows? But this child has gone through instances where they felt abandoned, instances where they had to grow up really quickly and learn to take care of themselves because they weren't able to get the attention of a caregiver. Our only language as an infant is really crying. I'm uncomfortable. I'm experiencing some sort of physiological sensation. So I need to get attention so that I can know that I'm safe. If at some point in time that that child has experienced being told that, stop crying. What are you crying about? You're not in pain. That's not true. Stop stressing, whatever it is. They've been invalidated from their experience. They know physiologically that they're experiencing discomfort, but that experience has been invalidated. So their only way of escape is into the mind. So they start daydreaming and they start abandoning themselves, meaning they leave their body, their consciousness leaves their body and stays in their brain. So we become disconnected from the body because we're told throughout childhood that the experiences that we're having aren't valid in our body and we should stay in our mind and we should start thinking and considering more and all this sort of stuff. So that builds up over time to create beliefs and behaviors that impact us throughout the rest of life. All this goes to our experience of pain, because like I said before, quite often through these experiences, we're not paying attention to the subtle sensations that are coming from the body. So in, let's say in the broad spectrum of back pain, very common, maybe at some point in time, you've been sitting down too much and you haven't been breathing effectively and your body's made you a little bit uncomfortable, but you don't listen to it. So you keep working and you stay sitting down for 10 hours a day. And then at some point in time, you start to get a little bit of a lower back ache, but you take some Panadol or some paracetamol, you take some drugs for it, you get rid of the pain. 
So you start to mask the pain. At some point in time, your body's trying to let you know what's going on. But because you're dissociated from it, you ignore it and you don't pay attention to it until there is a disc herniation. And of course, that would come with a whole bunch of spinal pain and back spasms. And you've got to take three or four days off work because you've thrown your back out. Your body was trying to tell you this the whole time. But now, because you've ignored it for such a long time, that pain has to be at a certain level in order for you to pay attention to it. Now, like I said, pain also passes through the amygdala. So it's trying to inform your emotional state. But some of these emotions, in the case of trauma, have been associated to some pretty horrific circumstances for you. So once we trigger that emotion, you start to feel that again, that can trigger a crisis state. So even though the pain might be completely unrelated to the initial circumstance, all of a sudden we're dealing with emotions, we're dealing with recurrent traumas, and we've also got to take care of the source of the pain itself and where that's actually coming from, physiologically, psychologically, and emotionally. Okay, I think that brings me to my next question, which I know is really, I mean, aside from the incredible intellectual understanding that I think myself and all the listeners have gained from you, the how-to and the physical application of really creating changes in our relationship with pain in order to work through it and stress and move forward. Where do we begin in actually healing ourselves and changing our relationship with these things? We can access the body. We can access our relationship with these sensations in these situations as regularly as possible. Becoming reconnected with the body can itself be quite traumatic for some people. So be careful when you're doing this because re-inhabiting the body can bring things up. First of all, we need to get curious. What's actually happening? What am I making that mean? And what do I get to do about it? Three big questions that I like to ask all my clients depending on the situation. In a daily sense, and I can dive into what this means, and I do have a resource available for this, but in a daily sense, we need to close the stress cycle. And what that means is whenever we go through stress, like we were talking about before, that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is stimulated. The reason for that is because we need to enter into this fight or flight state in order to survive. Or if the situation is deemed so, we'll enter into a freeze state. So the brain will make sense of the situation and the peripheral nervous system will act to keep you alive either fight or flight or freeze. We need to be able to close that cycle regularly and teach the body that it is safe again. So what that means is we need to give our body the experience, not just the intellectual story. I don't just need to know that I'm safe but I need to feel the experience of safety after the stressful event. These days, we don't do it too much. These days, we go from stress to stress to stress to stress. You know, the kids are screaming when I wake up and I've got to get them to school and I'm late for this because, you know, little Timmy didn't put his shoes on quickly enough and there's traffic and I'm, now I've got to go to work and the boss is at me and I've got these deadlines and I've got these financial stresses and one after the other. That never happened when we were evolving. It never happened when these neural systems were being laid down in our bodies. 
So we need to start to understand that these things should be cyclical and if we can close that stress cycle by giving ourselves the body language of safety, then we can start to recalibrate what it means for us to be stressed. Six easy things. Laughing, crying, being creative, deep breathing, physical activity, and physical affection. These are all things that we can do at the end of a long day or with our families to recognize and give our body the experience of safety. At meals, every time you eat, we need to be in a rest and digest state, the opposite side or the parasympathetic side of that autonomic nervous system. And the reason for that is because that is a rest and digest state because digestive juices, including stomach acid, are stimulated when we're in this state. And if we're not, if we're in a stressed state, well then literally the gap junctions in the small intestine are open to absorb more energy and undigested food particles are entering into the system, creating a state of inflammation. So it's really important before meals to do some deep breathing, some deep diaphragmatic breaths, exhaling longer than you're inhaling, and potentially even just humming. Because if you think about the meal experience of 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, we would come together around a campfire at the end of the day and we would eat and we would share our stories. So you would take a bite and you would start chewing and I would tell you about my day, which is vibrating my voice box and stimulating the ventral vagus nerve in order to stimulate this digestive process. So we're connecting on that level and we're signaling to our bodies that we're safe and we're ready to rest and digest. And then I would take a bite and you would do the same thing. So it's really important to breathe deeply and enter into this parasympathetic state before meals so that we can get best out of our nutrition. Even on an hourly sense during the day, it's really easy to take a conscious breath. And what that means is three to five breaths. As you breathe in, feel the breath pass through your nostrils. As you breathe out, feel the rest of your body. You might do a quick body scan in a very similar way to you, you were taught in Vipassana. So you'd feel your feet. You would feel the sensation if there is one around your knees. You would feel the sensation if there is one around your hips and your butt. You would feel whatever's coming up for you around your shoulders. Try and feel your shoulders drop and relax a little bit and do that three to five times. That's all you need to do. And if you can reconnect with your body, you start to ground and start to pay attention to your senses. You bring yourself back to the present moment because for most people, you cannot do that in a threatening environment. So by doing that, you're signaling to your body that you're currently in this very instance safe and then like i said before when it comes to pain changing the story a little bit if this pain is happening what is it motivating me to change what is it trying to stimulate here maybe it's just a positional thing maybe it's trying to tell me that there is potential for something to go wrong so i need to change the situation somehow Maybe it's inspiring me to move more, less. Maybe it's inspiring me to protect myself, whatever it is. So we can get curious about what it's trying to tell me. We can acknowledge and validate that experience, meaning, yes, there is pain there. I recognize that. What else is happening? Again, do the body scan. There are other sensations in the body, not just pain. 
once we recognize that, we've acknowledged it, we've validated it, we've made it real for us, but we've also integrated it and accepted it as part of our current experience and recognize that we're still safe even though we're experiencing a little bit of pain right now. Then we can start to understand and strategize the situation and say, hey, is there something I need to do about this? Amazing. I feel like this has been an entire masterclass, not just a podcast episode. I hope that listeners have had their pens and notebooks ready because I definitely wish that I had been taking notes throughout this whole thing as well. I feel like I've really learned so much from you, Dan, and I want listeners to know that before Dan and I even hit record today, he was already supporting me so much in my relationship with my body, my posture, my tendency to throw my back out like an 80-year-old man pretty regularly. And I think it's really clear, Dan, that you are such an incredible teacher and you know the body, the nervous system, the mind so, so well. So if someone was interested in learning more from you or working with you, what's the best place for them to reach out? Anything that you share is going to be put into the show notes. I'm on Instagram at Functional Executive. I'm on LinkedIn at Peak Executive Performance. You can email me at hello at revamphealth.com.au or you can go to the website, which will be in the show notes, go.revamphealth.com.au forward slash revitalize. Okay, amazing. And do you have any final words of wisdom before we close out for today? Any final lessons that you want to leave listeners with? Reconnect with the body. You're okay. There's stuff going on. Yes, absolutely. That's real. But right now, you've got the capacity to listen to the body and you've got the capacity to do something about it. Thank you so much for hopping on with me again and talking nerdy to me. Thanks for having me. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.